Good to see everybody today. Um, <clears throat> nothing says back to school like bacon. Actually, nothing says anything like bacon. Bacon is. <clears throat> uh, so this series on First Peter, we can tell it's going to be uh, a little intense, right? Um, this is week two. Last week, we talked about living hope versus dying hope. And uh, this week, I've entitled this week two of this series on First Peter called Remember the Cross. I've called it Tested Faith. So <clears throat> just going to jump right into it. What do you think about how the Bible is always instructing us to rejoice when we go through grief and suffering? Let's just think about that for a moment. The, the command, the encouragement that the Bible says, listen, when you're suffering, you should rejoice. What does it mean, actually? I mean, if the Bible says it, we should do it, right? So what does it mean to rejoice? And how are you expected to rejoice when earthly circumstances are ripping your life apart? Why can't God just save his children and because we have faith, bless us and make life easy? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, does our faith really need to be tested by suffering and trials to know that it's reliable? <clears throat> perhaps when the scripture says rejoice in suffering, perhaps this is one of those things, one of those phrases in scripture we all nod at with a serious face and says, yes, yes, amen. But secretly we hope it never happens to us. I mean, how should Christians respond to suffering? Does rejoice mean that you smile and remain stoic, strong, and brave, and act unfazed when your life is full of suffering? Is that what rejoicing means? To put on a good Broadway show? And is it possible that our view of personal suffering, suffering that we go to, is, is maybe a little narcissistic? I mean, what if the testing of our faith really isn't for our benefit at all? What if our suffering is necessary for others to see our faith being successfully tested so that they are inspired to believe. These are some of the issues we're going to be grappling with today as we start week two of our study in 1 Peter. And we're going to start in verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. <clears throat> Peter writing to these elect exiles that he's talking about had this amazing living hope. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. Think about that. He says it's necessary for them to be grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, and I put this in bold for a reason, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You notice there's a past, a present, and a future in this. We're going to get to that in a moment. So let's look at the history of this passage. I've entitled the historical section, which answers the question, what about man and what did he do and why and how did he do it? I've entitled this the faith of the Gentiles. So let's just say, <clears throat> is it okay to say that Peter <clears throat> had an apostolic advantage I mean, he's an apostle, and he enjoyed something that none of us have, something that none of these elect exiles 
in the area of modern-day Turkey that we talked about last week, something none of them have experienced, and that is a surreal, special experience of faith tied to seeing. Peter spent three years watching Jesus do miracles. He heard Jesus preach. He had personal, intimate conversations with Jesus over dinner and fishing. Yet even with all that, right, he's seen Jesus. He's seen him do miracles. He saw him raise people from the dead. He saw him feed 5,000 with just a few pieces of fish and some bread. He had intimate conversations about life. All these things, right? Even with that, Peter still struggled to the very end to understand what Jesus was really saying about his kingdom. Remember, we learned that in Mark. Jesus was known by Peter better than anyone. Yet Peter still ran scared and failed the test of his faith when confronted by a woman in the courtyard and said, hey, you were with him. You remember we studied that story a while back in our series on Mark. I think the sermon was called How Jesus Uses Roosters. You know, Peter also experienced tremendous heavy grief when Jesus died. In fact, it was so heavy, it was so disturbing, he was actually ready to go back to making fishing his living. Did you know that? Remember that story? Jesus had not yet appeared, and he said, I'm going to go fishing. And the other disciples said, yeah, we're going with you. That was them saying, well, this was a fun ride. Let's get back to our life we had before. From a purely objective analysis, Peter's faith, though it should have been stronger than anyone's, right? Agreed? It failed several times. It was Peter, after he met resurrected Jesus, that's when he became bold. That's when he became courageous. That's when he became the apostle Peter we love. Peter needed to actually see it to believe it. But then we see this concept of heaviness. <clears throat> I put it in quotes, and I'll explain why. See, unlike Peter, these believers have faced actual bloody persecution. Peter was threatened with it, but never actually tasted it himself until the end. See, it's not just a threat. Like Peter faced in the courtyard. These people actually face it. And we tend to be narcissistic about our suffering, as I mentioned earlier, don't we? In the moment, our suffering is the most important suffering in the world. Even if it's just a broken down AC in the car in Sarasota in August. Everybody seems to be able to relate to that to some degree. See, here Peter, because of the wisdom of his life experience, doesn't think that his suffering was greater than theirs. He knows that what they are enduring is worse than anything he faced in the garden. Remember when he chopped the guy's ear off? It's worse than anything he faced in the courtyard when he denied Jesus three times. It's worse than anything he faced after the cross. Yet Peter seems to grasp the depth of their suffering with the word he uses to describe what they've experienced. It's a great word. Lupethentes. It's from the Greek word lupeo, which is a verb. But what this word lupethentes means is to be in complete heaviness. It means to be in complete, total distress. To be grieving. The deepest possible sadness is the word that he uses. 
This is called nominalization. And what that means is when a word that is not a noun is used as a noun or an object or a subject in a sentence. He says, though you have lupentheos, lupentheos, uh, deep heaviness. This is an aorist active participle, meaning something that happened in the past that caused this state of grief and sadness and heaviness. You know, the English Standard Version translated grieved, and so does the NIV, but actually when I studied, I felt like the King James Version translated better than any of them. It actually says, though you are in heaviness. You are in heaviness. It's a beautiful translation in the King James Version. You won't hear me say that very much. I'm saying it today. King James Version. King Jimmy got it right. This is what this means. It means that Peter knew because of their circumstances, they were still at that point, because of something that has happened, they were at that moment in heavy grief and sadness as they read his letter. They've had friends, family killed by Nero. Their businesses have been targeted. Their homes have been destroyed. Their families, their children, if they have any pets, whatever it is, they're all under constant threat. Many of them have lost their children to Nero. But yet, something amazing is happening here. They have superior faith that is verified. So Peter describes a faith superior to his, more miraculous, more precious, and more reliable than his, he says, your faith has been tried by fire. It has been tested, these Gentile elect exiles, he calls them, tested by the worst that life could ever bring. He describes the strength of their faith in the past. Then he describes it, how it's affecting them in the present and how it will affect them in the future. He says, you haven't ever even seen Jesus, but you love him. He said that, right? They believed the gospel. Think about this. They believed the gospel without ever meeting this Jesus they have entrusted their heart and soul and life to. They embraced the gospel not because they saw Jesus in action, but merely because they heard about it from other witnesses. In fact, get this, here's even more amazing why Peter points out, you love him, you've never even seen him. They heard it from a Jewish man named Paul, who was famous for persecuting Christians before God saved him. Next, and by the way, they knew Paul was no friend of Rome at the time. Rome wanted Paul dead. So did the Jews. Next, after he says, you believe and you've never even seen him, then he says, you don't see him now. Like what he's saying is even you believed him in the past, though you had never seen him, you heard the gospel and you responded, and now you're suffering and you still don't see him, yet you have, and he says this, this is amazing, you have this indescribable joy amid your heaviness. Because of all this, Apostle Peter boldly declares his confidence in their future. He says, because of all this, your salvation is secure. Wow. Question, how would you feel to hear an apostle like Peter, actually who knew Jesus better than you could ever know him, describe your faith like, because of this, your salvation is secure? That's what's happening here. It's a lot of deep history, isn't it? 
look at the spiritual. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about this believing without seeing. The apostles were continually, and I, I touched upon this last week, but they were continually expressing the awe and respect in how God saved these Gentile, non-Jewish people who had never seen Jesus. And it becomes, in fact, through all of the disciples, a recurring theme in all their writings. Here's just a sample of some of my favorite verses from the apostles about faith without seeing. The righteous shall live by faith. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's a good one. This one's pretty good too. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Not bad, Paul. Pretty good. How about this one? For we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.1, 1. faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I could go on for another 15 minutes reading these verses. I just picked these. You can assume, right, if the apostles in the New Testament are writing about this so often, they certainly preached it. They certainly discussed it. As a matter of fact, the scripture says they were talking about it amongst themselves and they were amazed at the faith of the Gentiles. It says that in Acts. So why is this concept so pervasive in apostolic teaching? Why would people who actually knew and saw Jesus stress so much the faith of those who never did? Well, Jesus straight up told them why they would. He told the disciples, those who believe without ever seeing him have a stronger faith and a stronger hope than they do. You might remember Apostle Thomas, some call him Doubting Thomas, who said, here's what he said. I will never believe Jesus is resurrected. Not until I see the wounds on his hands and stuff my hand inside the wound in his ribs. That's what Thomas said, the, the apostle Thomas. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap, right? Oh, Thomas, why couldn't you be like Peter and James and John? And I doubt he was the only one who felt like this at one point or another, don't you? I mean, Jesus taught this lesson to all of them. Is it possible all of them needed to see the resurrected Jesus before they would become so courageous in their witness to the world? In fact, later, Jesus did appear to Thomas and commands Thomas, oh, yeah, okay, here's my wounds. Stick your hand in my side. Remember that story. And here's what Jesus says after Thomas does that and falls to the ground and says, you are Jesus, and I believe, blah, blah, blah. Here's what Jesus says to them, to all the disciples, not just Thomas. He doesn't say, Thomas, listen to me. Listen well. He says to all of them, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, that's where they got it from. Jesus kind of gave him a little bit of smackdown right before he went to heaven. You know what I'm saying? So this, this had to be a very humbling, impactful lesson for the apostles. Resurrected Jesus has taught his disciples this thing, and clearly they never forgot this faith without seeing thing. And we see Peter making, once again, this comparison of our living hope being more precious than gold. Look, we know there's a ton here in this passage theologically and spiritually. I could get really wonky with you on word studies on faith and hope and joy and all those things for like several weeks. Don't worry. We're not. You know why? Because God did not intend for these Gentile exiled believers to read it like that. 
He didn't want them to read it like seminary students parsing every verb form for weeks on end. That's not how Jesus and God wanted them to read it. All God wanted to do was use Peter to assure these believers their faith was real, no matter what they were going through, and that their faith was actually stronger than Peter's because they had never seen Jesus. God wanted these Gentile believers to know their faith, their joy, their hope was tested. It was stunning. It was powerful. It was unfailing. It was beautiful faith. And that creates these inspiring Gentiles. See, I think God was doing something else here that's really easy to miss. He's not just encouraging the Gentiles, yes, you're on the right track. God is using these Gentiles actually to inspire Peter. Remember what Peter wrote? Knowing that as he writes this letter, he himself is inviting what? Tremendous persecution from Rome on him. In fact, writing 1 Peter made him a significant target. In fact, he was martyred almost a year later. But he just had to write 1 Peter. The faith of these Gentiles had inspired him. Now, for Peter, we understand, like, for Peter to face persecution, it's probably a little bit easier. Remember, he's seen resurrected Jesus. He knows he's real. He's seen all the miracles. And there's stories of apostolic suffering for their faith. They're inspirational. They're, they're stirring, and they're good, and, and all that stuff is great, but not as inspirational as this Gentile suffering is. That's what Peter is saying. I mean, I've seen to believe, but you have not seen and believed. You're going through heaviness, and even now you don't see him, and yet you still love him. I mean, that's pretty fab fabulous stuff here. But yet he struggles with, to describe this miraculous faith he's seen in their lives of these precious believers. You know what he says? He calls this inexpressible. He, he says, I can't describe your faith. I'm at a loss for words. The apostle Peter can't find words intense enough to describe his admiration for their beautiful, brilliant faith. Their faith is based only on hearing. It's such a miracle that Peter starts off with it. He struggles to describe it. And while they're in the midst of intense heaviness because of their faith, they continue to believe someone who they've never seen. He explains how brilliant, how outstanding it is, and how this faith has created action, and how it has inspired everyone in the early church. Everyone knew what was going on in this region of modern-day Turkey. Everyone. So now we're going to talk about the personal section. What about you and me? What are we supposed to do and why and how do we do it? I've called this section Inspired by Suffering. Here was the sermon preview this week. Are you willing to endure grief so heavy it inspires others to be faithful? Think about that for a minute. I mean, consider how it made them feel to read in this letter how the testing of their faith through suffering inspired Peter and the apostles. You know, our tested faith inspires others as the power of hope and joy miraculously sustain us in ways that others can clearly see. That's the crux of what Peter was saying to these precious first century brothers and sisters who, by the way, we will one day get to meet. That's some hope. Like I said earlier, we're not talking about an AC breaking down or a dead battery or a dropped phone call. Verizon. <laughs> We're not talking about a fight with your spouse. We're not talking about a very mean 
atheist meme on Facebook. We're not talking about like, you know, red, red tide. Could you imagine, did you see those believers in Sarasota endure the tragedy of red tide? Wow, what faith, said no one ever. <laughs> it's not what we're talking about. I'm talking about real pain and real suffering like what these precious first century Gentile believers endured daily. But this isn't just theoretical truth. I can tell you in life's darkest moments, I've been stunned by hope's grip on our lives. Matter of fact, I don't think I could be your pastor today without first having verified faithfulness through heaviness. I've lived firsthand that it's inexpressible hope and joy and peace amid heaviness and grief. In those moments, there's this rock-solid, unassailable foundation of peace and hope that people can see. You guys know I've, I've used this, this definition before, and I really like a supernat joy is a supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. That's joy. And that's where we get the word rejoice. That means to recount your joy. Recount and celebrate again your supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. That's what rejoicing is. Remembering, rejoying, rejoicing. Now, some interpret this inexpressible joy as constant happiness, always smiling, defiantly upbeat no matter what. But inexpressible joy doesn't mean we pretend everything's okay when it isn't. Joy doesn't mean we never show any weakness or sadness. It's not about some fake, duplicitous, sanguine act. Our miraculous, tested faith allows us to weep. It allows us to be brokenhearted. It allows us to cry. It allows us to cry out. It allows us to be grieving while simultaneously rejoying, rejoicing, being supernaturally satisfied with the presence of God over anything else. I've got to bring a little James in here. I'm going to read this verse. Count. I'm going to stop there. You know what the word count means? Here's what the word means. I'm not going to give you the whole Greek thing. I'm just going to break it down for you. When he says count, he means it's a deliberate observable choice that we make because of faith. So he's saying, choose it all joy. Count it joy. Choose it to be joyful, not fake happy, not fake smiling. Choose it to be supernaturally satisfied with the presence of God over anything else. Choose that, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing... Of your faith, doesn't that sound like a lot like Peter's words? Can you see that the apostles all knew this? For know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look, I'm your pastor, and I don't wish hardship on any of you. But I can tell you this, without it, you're never going to experience the full power of faith, hope, and joy. Why am I telling you this? Because I want you to know how special your faith is to me. It's not just special to yourselves. It's special to everyone around you. In fact, the ability to rejoice 
in living hope, even as dying hope is surrounding you and sucking the life out of you, is evidence that we too are part of the elect exiles in verse 1. Your tested faith is enabling you to leap from spiritual baby to maturity and depth and strength and wisdom. It makes us far more effective kingdom agents when we have suffered various trials. And it helps us build up the faith of others as they see our faith verified, not for our benefit, but for theirs. But your faith, verified and tested by heaviness, is meant for far more than just you. Don't be so narcissistic. I have personally been inspired by what many of you endured in the last year and a half and how your faith has been confirmed. I'm looking at you, Hilda. I have other faces running through my mind, too. It's been for all of us to see, to rejoy, rejoice, that supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else, for all of us to see, to rejoice, and be inspired by. That's what Peter was teaching them. That's what he is teaching us today. How heaviness and suffering makes your faith real. For you and for those who have witnessed its brilliance and power. Our rejoying Rejoicing in times of heaviness is far more inspirational than rejoicing when the air conditioner is working. Don't you think? We can weep. We can cry. We can moan. Yet God's elect, God's elect exiles can sing in the most heavy moments amazing grace and mean every word and every note. The world can't do that. In fact, your faithfulness in heavy grief might be just what the person sitting right next to you needed to see today. I see some tears as I'm preaching this. You know what I'm talking about. It may be that they needed this. Somebody needs to see your verified, tested faith to be inspired to remember the cross once again. They may have forgotten. I don't remember the cross when somebody tells me they won the lottery. I just like, you know, shut up. But when I see a brother or sister enduring suffering pain, and hardship, wow. Are you okay with enduring heaviness? If it means one of your brothers or sisters might be inspired to remain faithful? Or would you rather somebody else endure the heaviness? That's a tough one, right? Is our faith just all about us? I don't think so. Heavenly Father, not exactly sure how I fully want to pray this. We don't want to suffer. We don't like heaviness. 
But maybe our faith needs to be verified. So others, even people like Peter, who we think have great faith, need to be inspired and encouraged to remember the cross. Maybe our suffering is supposed to be a gift of faith to someone else. Man, God, that's a really hard ask because we are so flawed and we are so self-centered. Boy, it would be a lot easier if the name it and claim it gospel was real, (laughs) but it's not. We know that the faithful can suffer and do. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would, two things. First off, make us willing to endure heaviness so that others may see our faith verified. And second of all, give us eyes that can skillfully see when others' faith is being verified. Give us the courage to come alongside and love them, but also be inspired by them. Thank you for this brilliant, beautiful, miraculous, tested, tried and true faith that you have gifted us with. In Jesus' name, amen. It's good to see everybody here today. We love you. Have a great week.